Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. This episode features a murderess who got away with murder for 16 years. Jean Ann James was born in 1940 and became a wife, mother, and a murderer by 1992. In a jealous and violent rage, she slit her friend's throat and left her for dead. Jean meticulously planned Gladys' murder and never told a soul. That is, until she shared her secret with a cop 16 years later. Vancouver is a bustling city nestled between snow-capped mountains and the Pacific Ocean in the southwest corner of BC and Canada. It is the country's third largest city, with a population of more than 2 million people who enjoy its lush green parks, ski resorts, and upscale shopping. Vancouver has also had the distinction of hosting the Expo World Fair in 1986. It has a thriving music, art, and theater scene and is home to many film companies. It is also well known for its beautiful horticulture garden, such as the Van Dusen Botanical Garden, Queen Elizabeth Park, and the famous Stanley Park. With Vancouver's temperate year-round climate, one can enjoy the changing colors of flowers blooming year-round from the purple crocuses in February to white magnolias in April, to orange tiger lilies in August, to the fire-red fall berries in November. Now things started out friendly enough. Jean, a retired flight attendant, and her husband Derek, an air traffic controller at the Vancouver International Airport, were friends for around eight years with Gladys and her husband Shinji Wakabayashi, an executive with Japan Airlines. Gladys arrived in Canada in 1976 to study piano and was the third child of a Taiwanese billionaire. The two couples lived not far from each other in the upscale neighborhoods of Richmond and Shaughnessy. Jean and Derek enjoyed dinner parties quite often and would visit Gladys and Shinji at their home. Jean's son Adam and Gladys' daughter Elisa even attended the same school together for a few years. During their marriage, Jean's husband was rumored to have had affairs every now and then, but they stayed married. In 1990, this foursome became a threesome when Gladys and Shinji parted ways. Now, Gladys was also rumored to have had affairs, and no one knows why she chose her good friend's husband for her next one, but it turned out to be an unwise decision. And it wasn't long before Jean started to put the clues together. According to Jean's confession to police years later, her husband was staying at a local hotel when Gladys phoned her. Later, when Jean got the hotel bill, she matched the phone number from Gladys's phone call to her husband's hotel and came to the conclusion they were having an affair. Jean was enraged. How could he? And how could her good friend betray her in this way? But Jean didn't confront her husband. Instead, she started planning her revenge. A very carefully planned murder, one in which she would leave no evidence behind and never be caught. In late June of 1992, just as the Japanese dogwood trees were beginning their summer gloom, 
Jean made a point of stopping by Gladys's to pick up some things on a Saturday afternoon. Then on the morning of June 24th, Jean carried out her evil plan. She told Gladys she had a surprise for her. So after Gladys dropped off her daughter at school, Jean drove her car from her house in Richmond to Shaughnessy and parked her car five blocks away from Gladys's home. She purposely walked in the alleyways so she wouldn't be seen. Once inside, her and Gladys enjoyed a cup of coffee, then proceeded upstairs to Gladys's large walk-in closet, or dressing room as it was referred to, so that Jean could present her with her surprise gift. The closet was between the master bedroom and the master bathroom. Gladys was sitting in the closet with her back to Jean, waiting. Jean used a cord hanging from Gladys's sweater and draped it around her neck so she would think she was putting on a necklace. Jean then confronted Gladys about the affair, and she denied it. Jean was furious and told her about the phone number and the hotel evidence, and Gladys started laughing. Jean put on the rubber gloves she brought with her and pulled out a box cutter. Its blade fully slid open at the ready, and she slit her friend's throat from side to side. Gladys didn't put up a fight. She fell to the floor and landed in a sitting position. She said she was sorry. It was 9.15 a.m. The Vancouver Sun reported that Jean said she knew Gladys would bleed out quickly. It was just a matter of minutes because I had cut her along her jugular vein. She's not going to last long. I just kept away from her because I didn't want to get blood on me. Jean was in a frenzy and angry. She used a box cutter to slash at her husband's mistress, cutting and slicing at her legs and torso, while telling her she would call an ambulance if only she'd tell her how long they'd been having the affair. But Gladys wouldn't tell, and Jean had no intentions of calling an ambulance. Jean walked back downstairs, washed the coffee cups, and left her friend to die. She managed to slip out of the house down the back alleys and back to her car without being seen. At 3 p.m. when Gladys didn't show up to pick up her daughter from school, she patiently waited until almost 5 o'clock before phoning her dad to pick her up. They arrived at the house at 5.30 and Shinji found his estranged wife's bloody body, lifeless. He ran next door to her brother's house and called police. When police arrived, they found a massive amount of blood in the dressing room and bloody footprints. Smudge prints were evident on the carpet and what appeared to be a partial print of a woman's high-heeled shoe on the ceramic tile floor in the bathroom. Jean drove to the other side of town to a metal recycling dumpster and disposed of the murder weapon. She took her clothes to the school incinerator and burned them. And later she traded her car in. She made sure all the evidence was either destroyed or gotten rid of. It was later reported that four days after the murder, Jean approached Shinji at his mother-in-law's house and probed for information about Gladys's injuries and how her body had been found. Can you believe her nerve? On June 6, 1993, the Surrey Leader newspaper reported that investigators believed that the suspect committed this act out of extreme hatred or was motivated by some form of revenge. It is also possible that the suspect was suffering from severe mental illness at the time of the attack. 
police have some evidence to indicate that the suspect in the slaying was another woman, that she remained very calm upon exiting the residence so as not to attract any undue attention. The suspect description is a white female, mid-50s, 5'4", 120 to 130 pounds with blonde hair. A private reward of $60,000 has also been offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of this suspect. Five weeks later, the province newspaper reported that after weeks of silence, Vancouver police believe they've uncovered the secret life of Gladys and are close to solving her shocking murder. Gladys's husband was quickly eliminated as a suspect when police discovered that by all accounts they remained on good terms. That left police looking for a murderer and a motive. And that's when they discovered the quiet and conservative victim had a secret life and a secret lover. He was a married man, and his wife learned of his affair with Gladys only days before the murder. Jean was a suspect almost immediately after Gladys' body was found. In July 1992, police searched her home and didn't find the shoe to match the bloody prints, and a search of her vehicle didn't turn up anything. Police followed Jean around for a time, but their surveillance didn't produce any leads. There just wasn't any forensic evidence linking her to the murder, and when police questioned Jean, she steadfastly denied any involvement. Then she hired a lawyer and stopped talking to police. By October 1992, the police had exhausted all their leads and did not have enough evidence to recommend charges. For the next 16 years, Jean and Derek stayed married and continued to live in Richmond, but things were about to change. In 2007, the RCMP's Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit designed a sting operation to catch Gene. Their Mr. Big technique involved a complex plan of undercover officers posing as members of a criminal organization and recruiting Gene at a chance meeting at a spa. Over time, the officers earned her trust, and Gene fell for it. In her efforts to prove she was a criminal, she met buyers of counterfeit products, moved vehicles, and delivered packages. And after 11 months, Jean was doing so well she could work her way up criminal ladder, and a meeting was arranged with Mr. Big. It took place in a Montreal hotel room, November 27, 2008. Jean shared her secret with a stranger, assuring him she had committed the perfect murder. Mr. Big wanted to be sure Jean had been the one to carry out the dirty work herself and asked her if she was concerned about DNA. And she said she wasn't because she'd been in the house days prior to the murder and the police knew that. Mr. Big was impressed. It sounded like she'd covered all her bases. Except the one where she shouldn't have told her deepest, darkest secret to an undercover police officer. December 17, 2008, with Christmas decorations adorning the house in Richmond that Jean and Derek still shared, Jean was finally arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Her neighbors were in shock and described her as a sweetheart, an outstanding citizen, generous, and an animal lover. Photos of Jean splashed across the newspapers and TV screens, showing a 68-year-old woman with curly short blonde hair and light skin with a taut face, shaved eyebrows penciled in giving her the look of a creepy plastic doll. 
It would take another three long years before the trial began on October 11, 2011. It had been 19 years since Gladys had been murdered by her friend and her lover's wife. Jean's lawyers fought hard for her and suggested to the jury that she fabricated her confession using details published in the local newspapers at the time of the murder. But the Supreme Court didn't buy it. And on November 4, 2011, after less than eight hours of deliberating, they found Jean guilty of first-degree murder. Outside, the orange and red fall colors were on fire. Inside, Jean sat in an icy courtroom, her face showing no emotion at the guilty verdict. She showed no regret, no remorse, just looked straight ahead and walked out of the courtroom to her new life in prison. Jean received the mandatory sentence of life in prison with no parole eligibility for 25 years. The Vancouver Sun reported that Gladys' sister-in-law, Susanna Yang, cried, smiled, and hugged prosecutor Kirk Clark after the jury convicted James of first-degree murder in their brutal slaying. At the time of the murder, Suzanne and her husband lived next door. Afterward, the couple took in Gladys' daughter, Elisa, and moved back to Taiwan to escape the memories. And like many murderers do, it didn't take long for her lawyer to file an appeal in the B.C. Supreme Court in December of 2011. Jean's lawyer cited numerous grounds for the appeal and in February 2012 requested a bail hearing for Jean to be released from prison pending her appeal. During this hearing, things took an interesting twist. Jean, who was incarcerated in the Fraser Valley Institution for Women, was under police investigation. The prosecutor requested a one-week adjournment, which the judge granted. On April 10, 2012, the Richmond News reported that it was revealed at Jean's bail hearing that she was accused of attempting to obtain false ID in order to flee the country. Her lawyer strongly denied this, pointing out that the fellow inmate that accused Jean specified that she requested fake ID of a First Nations person who had dark skin and hair which was ludicrous because Jean had light skin and blonde hair. He further pointed out that the inmate who wrote the letter signed it using a fake signature of another inmate. The prosecution argued that Jean was a significant flight risk, and the judge agreed, and Jean's bail was denied. Her appeal took over just a year, and on January 1, 11, 2013, a three-member appeal court panel dismissed the appeal and upheld her guilty verdict. Jean was 72 years old and sentenced to life in prison. It is likely she will never leave prison alive. But hey, she's lucky she's alive, right? Gladys didn't have the option to grow old. But this case doesn't end here. In June 2015, Jean was now an elderly 76-year-old convict and wanted private visitation with her husband of 40 years and son who is now an adult. The Correctional Institute denied her the visits and cited the potential for domestic violence. And CBC reported that in August 2015, the federal court denied Jean's bid for private visitation and she must serve her time in prison alone. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of serial killer Clifford Robert Olson. It was the summer of 1981 and parents knew someone was grabbing their innocent children off the streets. But how long would it take before police tied the cases of the murdered children together? 
and how many would go missing before a monster was stopped. It turned out to be 11. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.